some of these ladies yeah. out they, here. Yeah. Go to go to 125th Street and some of these ladies will they'll peel like, out your have, hair. They have good intentions, but yes. their hands are very strong. There's <laughs> a difference between laid and laid. Okay. Almost gone laid. Yeah. Like laid to rest. <laughs> laid to rest. <laughs> hey guys, I'm Jessica Kroll, the Allure Features Director. And I'm digital hair editor Jihan Forbes. Our wonderful editor-in-chief, Michelle Lee, will be on maternity leave for the next few months. So she's asked a few Allure editors to host the podcast until she returns this summer. You may have heard my interview with Lily Aldridge, where we talked about all things fragrance and sustainable beauty. But today I'm so excited to be here with Jihan, because as beauty editors on the Allure team, we both produce content and review products servicing our audience. On this podcast, we're diving deep on a topic that is important to us personally as Black women, melanin. Yes, yes, yes. We asked noted New York City dermatologist, Dr. Michelle Henry, to come and talk to us about everything having to do with Black skin, from injectables to even regrowing them edges. Yes, you can regrow your edges. I hope you enjoyed this conversation because as Dr. Henry says, when you know better, you do better. So today we're here with Dr. Henry. Hello. And why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So my name is Dr. Michelle Henry. I'm a dermatologist and dermatologic surgeon based here in Manhattan, New York. And I do the full range of dermatology. So everything from skin checks to acne to hair loss to things like, you know, warts. And I do hair transplant. I do liposuction. I do skin cancer surgery. So I do the full range. I specialize in skin of color and high-risk skin cancers and aesthetic procedures. So I see a ton of patients. I'm very busy and I love what I do. I think dermatology, Black dermatologists Uh in particular, are so rare. And as we all know, if you can't see it, you can't believe it. What was it like for you being one of few Black dermatologists. Scary. <laughs> you know, when when I initially decided that I was interested in dermatology, it's scary. You know, it's it's the, one of the hardest specialties. And getting in, I always joke, I say it's like the Hunger Games, you know, yeah, like oh I choose gosh. to be tribute. Like it's literally life or death at every stage. You know, in my medical school, they tell you point blank, full stop, if you don't make this score, we will not write your letter, which means if they don't give you your support letter, you're not getting in. And so you have to decide early, you have to work hard, you have to compete, you have to have letters, you have to. And that's what makes it hard because um, a lot of it is mentorship, you know. And sometimes, if you, like you said, if you don't see it, you can't do it. And oftentimes we gravitate towards mentors like ourselves. It, it is about like going outside of your comfort level and building those relationships and going into spaces where, you know, you may not feel welcome and like kind of clawing your way in and making it happen. So it's really hard. And I'm sure any Black dermatologist will tell you that it's a fight. You know, it's it's worth it, but it's a fight. So going back to, like, I guess the dearth of Black dermatologists in, um, particularly in the U.S., because there's been a lot of talk about it. What is that like? Is there kind of, like, um, between, like, all the dermat- Black dermatologists, it's, like, a, obviously a small community. Is there a support there? Or is, is everyone just like, yo, we need to get some more Black there, folks in this? I will say that I am humbled by the level of support. Like, we are a close-knit group of folks. You know, if I'm busy and someone needs to get in and they can't get in in, you know, a month, usually I'll work someone in. But if, if or if they they don't live close to me, I'll say, here's my colleague, go there. Like, cause what's most important is that you get the care that you need. And so we are, we have our own Instagram group 
where we literally Instagram each other all day, like a, like a pod talking about what can we do. We share opportunities. We share media opportunities. We have our own Facebook groups. And we have it also with all of our colleagues. That's awesome. Let's go into sunscreen. Yes. Yeah, there was that <laughs> article in the New York Times, Should Black People Wear Sunscreen? Uh-huh. And I will say... When I grew up, it was just a summertime thing. Yeah. Like, I didn't even hear about sunscreen until we went to the beach mm-hmm. for vacation. And then mom was like, okay, you got to put sunscreen on. Yeah. But other than that, it wasn't a daily thing. Mm-hmm. I just think maybe two or three years ago, I started wearing sunscreen on a daily basis. Yeah. But I think there's this myth out there, or maybe it's not a myth, that Black people don't need sunscreen yeah. because we have melanin to protect yeah. us. Yeah, it's a myth. It's a myth. And I mean, I'm the same way, the same way that I never went to a dermatologist. Sunscreen wasn't a huge thing for me either growing up, you know? And now I think about it and I'm like, I was just out in the sun, fancy free, you know? We didn't we didn't know, you know, we didn't think about it. And, and culturally, it wasn't a thing. Like, you know, I'm Caribbean, you know, and like we live on the beach and that's what we do. We just didn't think about it. And so although I shudder at it now, well, of course, your habits change when you know better, you do better. So sunscreen is absolutely necessary. We know that UV light is a carcinogen. We know that. And although we have melanin, I always say our melanin is beautiful, but it's not perfect. You know, we still are vulnerable. And so even the deepest, darkest, richest, most beautiful skin is just SPF 13. And we know that what we want is SPF 30. You know, we know that protects us. And yes, the rates of skin cancer are lower and uh, skin of color, but it actually hit home for me. My uncle had a basal cell cancer, my type five to six. So a little bit darker than me. So dark skin, black person, uncle just had a basal cell cancer. And so it happens. And we say the rates are lower, but it's it's low until it's you, you know? And so when you're making decisions for your own life, you know, it's not about just statistics. It's about doing whatever you can do to reduce your risk, your individual risk. So I still recommend it. Um, reasons why people don't want to use it. There are all these conversations about ingredients and toxicity. And especially for, in skin of color, that's important because we know that in our products, we are more exposed. Mm-hmm. So whether it's sunscreen or whether it's hair dye or whether it's relaxers or whether it's just anything that's in the ethnic aisle, we know that our levels of those toxic ingredients are higher. So it is a conversation and we have to be like active consumers and read those labels. So the concern is not misguided, but it's just about making good decisions in sunscreen. So there are ingredients that we try to avoid. So like oxybenzone. So some of those ingredients in the chemical sunscreens, I tell everyone to avoid, including our patients of color. So if we're using ingredients like zinc and titanium dioxide that we know are mineral sunscreens, we live in a great era now that you ha- we can have cosmetically elegant sunscreens that are minerals. We have powders. There are some great brands making like micronized sunscreen. So using those natural ingredients, micronizing them, and that you could still use them on deep, rich skin tones. So we have a lot of options. So it's not about like, should I use sunscreen? You absolutely should. You just have to use a sunscreen that you feel comfortable with, something that you feel comfortable with the ingredients. And now we have more options and we could do that. Something that isn't going to make you look ashy. I think that's like the perception, right? Is that sunscreen is oily and ashy and it makes me look just pale. And I think that's the perception that people don't want to use it. But like you said, technology is getting better. There are also a lot of Black entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. coming out with sunscreens specifically targeted for us. It's fantastic. And you know, it's like, we should like lead that charge in terms of like, we are large consumers. So we spend 80% more than our Caucasian counterparts on beauty, you know, like so much more. And I love all the Black female entrepreneurs that are doing it, but I think all beauty companies are, are listening that America is browning. <laughs> you know, the world is browning. There are more of us and we have to meet those needs. So I think I'm starting to see a lot of amazing Black entrepreneurs are doing amazing things. And I've tested a lot of 
products from some good things that are on the horizon. And that excites me. But also just even a lot of mainstream brands are really investing in making products that are a safe and cosmetically elegant and will not leave you ashy. Because I always tell all of them, I was like, get it off my desk. <laughs> it makes you ashy. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't do it because it's blasphemy. You can't come to yeah. the black dermatologist and no. leave looking like a ghost, you know? So I'm, you know, anything that I recommend is going to be cosmetically elegant for um, everyone's skin. But yeah, it's a good, it's a good time for sunscreen. So we're talking about SPF 30. Mm -hmm. And so first I heard that like SPF 30 is like the most you need and then everything above that is frivolous. Yeah. But I also heard that that's not necessarily true mm -hmm. because of like how they test SPFs and like 30s, how they slather a bunch on. Yeah. So is it better to go higher with the SPF yeah. or does it not matter as long as so, you put on a so bunch right of sunscreen? right now, the belief... And like the FDA's stance is that above SPF 50 is the improvement you get above that is negligible. Because the truth is it kind of gives you a false sense of security. So if you're wearing SPF 100, you feel like, you know what, I could walk right into the sun, right? Like I am so protected. I can do whatever I want. And that's not true, you know, because you sweat, you perspire, you're outside, you rub it off. And we think that patients feel so protected by it that then they make poor sun choices. And the difference between SPF 50 and SPF 100, it's like a percentage point, you know, so it's, it's not significant enough to then give you that false sense of security. Some companies are doing their own studies saying that SPF 100 is better, but it's negligible. So right now we say the difference between 50 and 30 is significant. That's why we, we, we recommend 50 when you're outside for more than an hour, but above that might just be more marketing. So please no one attack me. <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to get a million and 100s and above. And if I see the research, I will, I will like recant that statement. Um, but right now, the stance is that 50 is about what you need. I know that Black people are less likely to get skin cancer mm -hmm. than others. Mm -hmm. But I know also that we get different types. We're more likely to get it on our palms and on the bottom of our yeah. feet, correct? Yeah. So they're in terms of melanoma all folks of color are more likely to get acral melanoma. And that's when we see it on the hands and feet, on the fingernails. So we get these little streaks on our nails. Some of those streaks are benign. It's called melaninicia. Most black folks will have it by the age of 50. And you've, we've all seen it. Our parents have it, you know. But when they become thick and dark and they disturb the texture of the nail, that can be melanoma. And I always remind everyone that um, it's real. Bob Marley died of acral melanoma. And so we talk about that every Black History Month. We always, it's always out there, but it is important to know. It makes it real and tangible. And I've seen it. And it's the worst thing to see. You know, I saw a young 26-year-old woman um, whose nail was completely destroyed by this Black growth. We biopsied it. Awful melanoma. And we know that for many reasons because of um, low public knowledge about this and maybe even a low, lower index of suspicion for skin cancer with healthcare providers as well, because we just don't think of skin cancer, we think of skin of color, um, that our outcomes are worse. So we know that, you know, in five years, our survival rates are somewhere like from 65 to 70. And in five years in Caucasian skin, it's, you know, 90 or a little bit above 90. And that's because of those two factors. So it is really important to talk about melanoma because, again, you know, we talk about numbers and we talk about statistics, but when it's you, it's 100%, you know? And so what you're working on is making sure that you do whatever you can do to protect yourself from this, this risk. I think it's, it's interesting what you said about not every medical provider knows what to look for in darker skin tones. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's why it's so important for us to have agency mm -hmm. and to know what to look for. And that's why I tell all of my patients. So, and, and that comes in. So I have some patients come in, they're angry and they have a list. And I, my first thing is I sit down and I say, I'm here all day. 
we can answer all of your questions because it is important that everyone knows how to, that they have agency and that they should be their own advocate. And so don't be afraid to like have your list and ask your questions and advocate for yourself because it's important. And you're right. If you go to your primary care doctor and you show them, they say, oh, that's not a cancer. Oh, you have this. Say, you know what? I want a referral to a dermatologist. You know, I want to go to someone and I'll ask them because a dermatologist will have a higher level of suspicion and a higher um, technical expertise in using things like a dermatoscope to look at it, being able to watch it and measure it and know all the signs. So yeah, ask for your specialist, come in, let us see it. And if your dermatologist doesn't think it, you know, it's always okay to get a second opinion. Don't be afraid to push, right? That's why we pay Cigna and all these places, <laughs> you know, our, our money every month is to make sure that we, we can have access. Well, I know for me, what finally convinced me to wear sunscreen is that some protection, even though they say black don't crack. <laughs> I mean, that's debatable. You know, sunscreen is also a way to protect against the signs of aging, like dark spots and exactly. fine lines and things like that. And so I think, you know, me being a little bit vain, I'm not going to lie. That was one of the things oh. that got me wearing sunscreen every day. My that's main thing was vanity. I started wearing sunscreen when I was 25 because I found like <laughs> one smile line. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. We're doing, we're doing a sunscreen from now on. <laughs> yeah, that's why I told my patients there. I was like, oh, black don't crack. I'm like, black fades. It sags. It will eventually crack. Oftentimes, my bait to get everyone to use sunscreen is like, I want to keep you from skin cancer, but it's often beauty, you know, because that's how we age. And you're right. We don't photo age as readily. So we don't get those lines of wrinkles, but we get, like you said, hyperpigmentation is part of how we age, sunspots. That kind of uneven pigment is how we age. It's just becoming dull is how we age, you know? And so protecting ourselves from the sun will keep us beautiful and, you know, protected also. Yeah, just because we age at like 50 doesn't mean we don't age at all. You know exactly. what I'm saying? Like my mother's still looking good, 55. But, you know, yeah. once you get upwards in age, it's going to show. Not everybody's Angela Bassett, yeah. you know? And She's I, lovely. And yeah. I always say that, you know what? So what if we don't age until we're 50? Why not age until you're 70, right? <laughs> so we have, we have, we started the race, you know, we have a little advantage in the race, but why not like take full benefit of the genes, right? So like, why stop there? I also want to know, <laughs> now we get into the personal questions. Uh-huh. Are the sisters coming yeah. in to get the Botox fillers, things like that? Because I do think there's a perception that we, you know, black don't crack, don't age. But it's almost like you want to live up to that. Or if you see a little something, you want to correct it. But there's like this stigma that we shouldn't be worried about aging. We shouldn't yeah. be worried about wrinkles yeah. because black is gorgeous, black don't crack. But, you know, I got a little couple things I'm a little ready to address. Yeah. I'm a little Rastamana yeah. is what I call it. I forgot the like oh, deep you're so, you're so cute. I got the deep circles underneath. No, you know, it's that's a lie. I I injected probably 15 black women today, right? So awesome. it's, it's out. Make that 16 because I'm coming. 17. I've been talking about it. It's out. Black women are coming and it's, and it's really becoming normalized. You know, it's like people are proud that they come in. And like once upon a time, my non-black patients would get injected. They'd post right after, oh, I was just here with Dr. Henry. But now the black women are posting too. So I know it's really getting normalized. You know, like people aren't ashamed. And we're thinking of it as maintenance, just like anything else. You know, you're not ashamed that you go to the hair salon and we sit there for three hours because we want to look beautiful, right? That's not something we're ashamed of. We shouldn't be ashamed of doing the things that everyone else has access to to also feel and look our best. So yeah, I have a lot of um, black women coming in. The areas that I'm injecting are different. So that's a, that's a pattern that I see differently. So some black women do come in for lip, but not as much as my um, white patients. I do a lot of tear troughs. 
God, I do that all day long. That's the one I want. That's yeah. the one I want too. <laughs> That's I where need. we age first. Yeah. Yeah. And for many reasons, we age there first. Our cheeks tend to be a little flatter here. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, we sink early. So we are, they lighter skinned folks are wrinklers. We're saggers and sinkers. Mm-hmm. So we sag and sink here. So I'm injecting tear troughs all day long. I do some cheeks. I do a lot of noses. Is it like the injectable nose job? Yeah, a lot of noses. And some people come for vanity. Some people just come because they don't want their glasses to slide anymore. You know? Oh my goodness, y'all <laughs> can like, do that? Yeah, they're like, you know what? I'm tired of this life. I don't want my glasses to slide. Oh, put so, that on my list too. I want that. <laughs> I'm like making a to-do list. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah, women are there coming in. They're well-read on all of the procedures. They're like, I want the wrestling for this. I want the juvederm for that. A lot of black women may not wrinkle on the brow as much, but I have women that come in because... Their smiles are too gummy, so they want to drop their smile a little bit. They don't like that they flare their nostrils at rest, you know? They're like, I'm always flaring at meetings. I can't control my face. Everyone knows I'm angry, you know? So we'll do that. They want their eyes to be a little bit wider, so I'll do a little drop right under the eyelid just to make the eyes pop. So there's all sorts of things we can do to just give you that pop, make you feel more confident, but most importantly, keep you looking like you. I'm stunned. I'm literally here with my mouth open like, you can do that? (laughs) Like, all of these things. Full disclosure, I've been thinking about getting my own little fillers. I wonder, is there anything Black women in particular need to know about them? Obviously, our skin is a little bit different in the color, Mm -hmm. but, like, is is there, like, anything in particular that, like, these kinds of procedures, like due to our skin or like how they kind of react with with our skin types? So what I think about whenever I'm injecting women of color is that um, bruising. You really want to prevent against bruising because sometimes that blood could leak into the skin and it can leave behind hemosiderin, so uh, portions of the blood that can stay as pigment. Now in light skin, I can just blast that with a laser and get rid of it. In brown skin, I can't. And so then it's a problem. So now you look beautiful and contoured, but you have these dark streaks and we can't get rid of them. Not that we can't, they'll go over with time, we can peel them, but it's a big thing. So whenever I'm injecting folks of color, I always make sure that I try to use fewer injection points. That reduces your risk of bleeding. I try to use cannulas whenever I can. So cannulas are these like blunt tipped objects, so we're not damaging as many vessels. So I'm really super gentle because we want to make sure we don't cause that problem because I can't like make you beautifully contoured, like I said, and leave streaks behind. Um, so those are some of the big things that I think about. Um, those are, that's a major difference, you know? When we're filling, it's all about just like bone loss, fat loss, which we all lose bone and fat and facial structure. But I try to be really gentle. Around what age are you finding that yeah. Black women are coming in to start their injectable regimens? And is there an age that's too young? Because, you know, often you hear like, oh, you get that done too early. You're, it's yeah. just going to age you anyway. So wait. So it depends on what I'm doing. So there are two two reasons why I use filler for for correction and for augmentation, right? For augmentation, there's an age that's too young. I personally, unless there's a 16-year-old that comes in and says, I'm so depressed, their lip is deformed. But if it's deformed, then it's correction. Um, I'm not going to augment someone's lips at 16, right? I'm not going to give them high cheekbones at 16, you know, come back in 10 years or, or more. But if someone says, you know, her lip is uneven, she had a dog bite, and this, she's being teased, then I will do that. So, so it depends on what we're doing it for. For standard aging, everyone ages differently. Some people just by their family or, you know, their, what they've inherited, they may have sunken eyes at 25. If it's there and I see it and it's troubling, I fix it. I think the problem comes in when people are like, you know, an 18-year-old has been looking at Kylie Jenner and she wants Kylie lips. I mean, you're an 18-year-old adult. That's not my aesthetic. And I always try to push against it. 
But, you know, if I see it and it's there, I treat it. So it's hard to say what age because everyone's so different. You know, I have a patient today that has never had filler and she's now 56 and looks amazing. And we did, you know, two drops of Botox and half a syringe of filler. That's all she needed. And then I have 29-year-olds where I'm like, bring in more syringes. <laughs> you know, we need, it's like everyone's different, <laughs> right? <laughs> everyone's different. And it, yeah, and it's not it's not the sort of thing when done well that it, it's not going to ruin your appearance. You know, the filler is hyaluronic acid is what we use primarily. Your body gets rid of it with time. You know, some people hold it longer than others. So before I treat you, I always reassess. So some get rid of it in a year, some get rid of it in six months, some hold it for two and a half years. And so before I retreat, I always reassess and see if we could see any more product because what we don't want to do is keep building and building and then you start to look odd, right? So we want to know like how you metabolize the product. But it's just all about what we see. You know, every time we introduce the needle into the skin, there are some studies that show that we actually stimulate some collagen. So a big question I get is after I do it, am I going to look worse? And actually, you're either going to go back to your baseline. And if we truly believe we're stimulating some collagen, you may look a little bit better, right? So it's not going to stretch out our skin. And then when it goes away, your skin just collapses. And then, you know, you're ruined for life. That's, that's not going to happen. Either you go back to baseline or maybe you look a little bit better. I'm more worried about getting it and loving it so much. That I can't stop. Yes. And then, you know, the way my savings account is set up, like, <laughs> what if I like it too much? And then I just have to have a regular six-month appointment with Dr. Henry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? We don't not buy fashion because we're it, it, we're scared we're going to look too good. And then we're just going to be stuck buying fabulous clothes, right? That's true. It's, it's with all things. You know, you do things that make you feel good and it becomes a part of your maintenance and you figure it out, you know? So I'm going to put a special savings <laughs> fund for my fillers. It's a priority. You got to prioritize. Right. It's important. Uh, yes. you, you know, you want to, I was a lot of my older patients, they always say the thing that touches me the most, they always say, thank you for making me look as good as I feel. And we should all look as good as we feel. Yeah. And if you feel powerful and fabulous, you should look that way. We all do better when we know that those things aren't incongruent. Do you get a lot of black men sometimes that I come in wanting on? I am very proud to say I'm getting more and more black men. A lot of black men used to come in, men in general, come in like on the sneak. You know, they come yeah. in, they're like, I want a skin check. But there's this thing here. What is that? <laughs> I'm like, you know, a that's wrinkle? a wrinkle, right? Um, and they're not. They're coming in and they're saying, you know, I have these wrinkles. And I run a company and I don't want to look tired. And, you know, I'm at meetings all day and I'm, you know, I'm up at 5 a.m. And, you know, or I want to look fit. I'm working out. I'm a, a marathon runner. My body looks fantastic. But now my face looks haggard. And this is not what I want to project. And so men are coming in and just asking for things by name. And they're smart. And they're, they're on Instagram. And they're looking at photos. And their girlfriend isn't dragging them in, you know. Um, so, yeah, I'm seeing more and more. The numbers are growing. I love that. I also think it's interesting what you mentioned about lasers. Mm -hmm. For years, I think... My white counterparts have been able to go to the laser appointments and things like that. And I've always been too afraid yeah. because I worry about the technology. Also, you know, you can't trust everybody with a laser on your face. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But are there technologies coming out that are better for darker skin tones or are we years away from that? No. We're years away from everyone being able to do it. But we have the technology and those who know how to use it appropriately get good results. So again, I laser brown skin, the deepest, darkest, richest skin every single day. And a lot of people refer those patients to me because it is advanced laser surgery. You have to know how to read the skin. You have to know how to do the right settings because I also see all the disasters. So we know that there are like, you know, laser pop-up shops ev around every corner. And sometimes I'd even do like little sting operations. I'll go in and I'll pretend that I want to have a treatment. I love it. 
<laughs> I know. Now I can't do it anymore because they're going to know it's me. <laughs> but <laughs> I'll go in and I'll say, what settings are you using? <laughs> you know? And I just to see what they're doing. And the settings are often wrong. That scares me because I know that my patients are out there and they don't know what settings they're they're doing. So yeah, it's it's lasers. It's the one place where these these lasers are not colorblind, not yet. There there are some, but they're not yet. So it's really really important that if you're getting lasers and you are a person of color, you ask all the right questions. How many have you done? You know, it, patients ask me all the time. And you know, there's a moment where you're like. But, but the truth is, I want a patient who is um, an advocate for themselves. So ask me all the questions. I'll tell you how many I've done. I'll tell you if I've had any problems. And every patient should feel comfortable asking any doctor, any person that's touching them that question, you know, um, because it's important. Personally, I want to talk a lot about hair. For Black women, mm-hmm. hair is our crown. Mm-hmm. I spent eight hours on my hair on the weekends. Oh, thank you. Fabulous. Time spent. But... There's also, I feel, like a lot of underlying scalp issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hair loss is something that particularly runs in my family. Mm-hmm. My aunties love a good wig. Mm-hmm. But what kind of hair issues are you seeing in your office that Black women are really concerned about? I see there is a tremendous epidemic of hair loss. Tremendous epidemic of hair loss. Partially, some of it is um, genetic. So there are some conditions like what we call CCCA, central centrifugal circumstitial alopecia, which we see more in women of color. We believe that a lot of our styling practices play into that as well. You know, a lot of like straightening, pulling, tugging, weaves, wigs, all the things that we do that are beautiful, but are kind of harsh on the follicles. So I see a lot of hair loss, a lot of hair loss. And uh, it's about finding it early. And, you know, part of it is that I wish people knew how common. So when the congresswoman came up with their hair loss, I was like, ah, thank God, because there's so much shame around it. Like we blame ourselves and we say, you know, I shouldn't have gotten that relaxer at 95. Like it's my fault. I did this, you know, and it's just so common and it's it's not always you. And sometimes it is you with things like traction, but treat it early. The minute you see it, come in because our treatments are really great at stopping it. You know, they're good at stopping it. But when it's gone too far, it's a little bit hard especially with a lot of scarring hair losses that we see in women of color, it is absolutely critical. So sometimes in my office, patients will come in with just the the suggestion of hair loss and I'll biopsy it and I'll find CCCA and it makes my day because I know that I've saved their hair. We may, they may never become bald, but a lot of women come into me when they've lost 70% of their hair mm-hmm. and that's really hard. So it's about getting that conversation out there, getting rid of the shame around hair loss. You know, not only black women, White women, Asian women, Hispanic women, everyone has hair loss. And I think that so many women come in blaming themselves or they won't take their wig off in front of the nurse because there's so much shame, you know, and I just want to get rid of that. And so I tell them, you know, like I'm a black woman. I've done all the things I've done, the weaves, the wigs, the relaxers. I've been natural. I've done all the things. I've had hair loss. I've not had hair loss. You know, it's just about it can happen to everyone. You know, it doesn't discriminate. How do you know if it's early that? Well, I mean, obviously you can see like with thinning, but I think sometimes you're just like, oh, is this just, was I just really stressed out? Why is all this hair coming out? Like, you know, I think sometimes we tend to dismiss those little things. Is there like a point early on where it's just like, okay, this hair is coming out, but maybe I should go see a doctor. With hair and with anything, anything that goes on for more than a month, I want to see it. And that's with like skin lesions as well. And it's just about checking in so that we can stop it. So just like you said, stress. So there's something we call telogen effluvium that happens with, it could be like emotional stress. It could be with like metabolic or physical stress. So if you've had a surgery and you can get this like kind of shedding that usually stops within two to four months, but sometimes it doesn't. 
And sometimes that can be, it could be indicative of other things. So it could be that your thyroid is not quite right. It could be that your iron isn't as, as low, that your vitamin D is low, that you have an autoimmune disease. And so anything that's going on for like a month or more, it's, it's worthwhile just coming in and making sure you're okay. After the break, we'll talk about how you can combat hair loss, edge revival, and Dr. Henry's own personal skincare regimen. Every month, our editors test hundreds of beauty products and you can get some of our favorites in the Allure Beauty Box. For just $15, we'll send a box with at least two full-size items to your house, along with a mini magazine that includes our special editor tips. New members get a special gift, and this time it's the Giorgio Armani Lipstick Duo, which is valued at $21. Sign up at beautybox.allure.com. Get you one. Welcome back to the Allure Podcast. Our conversation with dermatologist Michelle Henry continues. So that brings us to the question, if we're wearing protective styles, which is very popular among the naturals, how long is too long? So I always say, especially if you're someone who has had hair loss before, no one likes this. And I'm going to be the bearer of bad news. I told you. I told you (laughs) this was going to happen. Don't come for me, please. But, you know, people get upset, but I say two to four weeks. Boom. Yeah. On box braids? <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe for, and it depends on your hair type too. So you'll know your hair type. So there, if you have like coarse hair that can withstand it, then maybe four weeks. But a lot of my patients come in, they're using the braids because they have fine, weak hair. If you have fine, weak hair, you could lose all of your edges in two mm, weeks. Yeah. We all know that edges are persnickety, you know? Mm. <laughs> you can have full edges <laughs> One on, day they're on in Monday and, the next day. and on Friday, your edges are gone, right? We have to be very, very careful. And everyone gets mad at me, like, you know, like right now, like, we know it's festival season. Everyone's going and they're getting their braids. They want to go out. And I'm like, promise me you'll take it out when you get back because it really can happen in the blink of an eye. If we think about our follicles, our follicles are made to hold just those hairs, you know, one or two hairs, you know, or how many hairs are in that follicle, but it's made to hold that. And now when we're adding hair on top of it, and now we're then styling that hair on top of it, we're putting the tension on it that was never made to hold, you know? And what happens when we create tension, we get inflammation. And what does inflammation cause? It causes a scar. In the same way that if we cut ourselves, we get inflammation, we get a scar. That's happening on a microscopic level in our follicles. And so we have to be really, really careful and like know yourself. If you have fine hair, you just... Sorry, that's just not, that's not your gift. You can't have those styles. You know, you can't do that. It's not for you. I mean, my heart is breaking. <laughs> the truth hurts. It, it hurts. Yeah. I'm in pain. Yeah, it's, it's physical stinks. pain. <laughs> yeah, it stinks, but you know, it's like you can do it, but just not long. Not, not many, many months. I always thought the longest you were supposed to keep box braids, in particular, not like, you know, corn road down, I, a month is top. I wouldn't even keep it a month. But box braids, I always thought, like, the longest it could go is three months, and then you had to get rid of it. You know, it's hard. A lot of people do it, but it depends on your hair type. But I feel like wouldn't even getting them redone also still contribute to it because you're still having somebody come in and right, especially yeah. some of these ladies yeah. out they, here, yeah. go, to, go to 125th Street and some of these ladies will, they'll peel like, out your hair. They have good intentions. Though. Yes. Their hands are very strong. It's <laughs> the difference between laid and laid, okay? Almost gone laid. Yeah. Laid to rest. Laid to rest. <laughs> 
you guys are so silly. But yeah, you have to be really careful. And like, yeah, three months, I don't recommend it. I know people will do it and they'll say that they're her flourishes, but those follicles are not made to hold anything excessive. For Imagine if you were holding up your purse that long, you know, your arm would give out. And we're causing our little follicles that also have a little tiny muscle attached to them some, um, to, to do that for months and months and months. And we just can't do it and expect not to have some level of damage and inflammation. And so I say, you know, if you do it, not more than a month. And if you have weak, weak strands, <laughs> change it in two weeks. And then if you're, if you're someone who likes the braids, change it up. You know, don't do the same pattern because it's that, that traction is caused by pulling in the same way all of the time, that tension, that constant tension in that direction. So it's like change it up a little bit if you're going to keep doing it. Should we take breaks in between break Ab- styles? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Always take a break treat your scalp, um, you know, whether it's braids or weaves or whatever you're doing. I, I just really, there's something I always want to coin. I call it um, weave fatigue is what I always tell my patients. You know, it's like those follicles are like, I just need a please, <laughs> you know, I just need a break. But I, it is, it's a, it's a real phenomenon. You see people who have been doing it consistently over and over again. And at a certain point, you just need a break. So speaking of that, I mean, what is the edge revival regime? Yeah. You know, once you've maybe tugged a little bit too yeah. hard. You're noticing that your baby hairs aren't laying quite yeah. the same. What should we be doing to kind of refresh? And, you know, I think so much of our ethnic hair aisle is focused on hair growth. Mm-hmm. So many hair growth oils, mm-hmm. so many hair growth pills, which I would love your opinion on if mm. those are actually worth yeah. the money. Because, yeah. you know, I think people market things to us oh, yeah. knowing that we're just going to follow it. You know, we need to know, like, are these things actually working and what's the right way to go about giving our edges some love? Yeah. So like you said, there are a lot of like snake oil salesmen out there. The whole market really isn't regulated in the way that it should. So we can make a lot of false claims on things that are not truly medications. But if I had to give just some like ground rules for bringing the edges back, a lot of it is hands off, you know, hands off, leave them, you know. So I was I give talks all the time and I'm like, my edges are never late. That's why they're there. <laughs> you know, like they're, they're never late. I like get that like, on a shirt. <laughs> and it's fine. And we should find beauty in that. Like I have kinky curly hair and that's how it's going to grow out of my head. And I like it, you know, and if you don't like it, then turn away, you know. And so I think it's just a culture of like knowing that it, we don't have to be pulled and tucked within an inch of our lives to be beautiful, you know, and it's OK. And if your hair, some people can do that and it looks great when it's laid and there's no judgment. But you have to know yourself, you know, if you can't do that and without losing it, then that's just not for you. You know, then we find beauty in other things. Um, so it's a lot of it is hands off, you know. Moisture, 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 because when those little fine hairs do start to grow, if they're super dry, they're just going to break. So it's about once we, it's about stimulating growth and then retention. And we always talk about kind of moisture protein balance. So I am a fan of using things that are going to give you some protein and some strength, but not too much. Too much protein makes it snap like a branch. Too much yeah. moisture makes it just, you know, tear apart. Good products, hands off, moisture, reduce heat, all the things we've always been told. I am a fan of things like minoxidil. In traction alopecia, people always say, if I do it, do I have to use it forever? You know, it's different than female pattern hair loss where your hormones never change. You know, unless we're doing something to, to quiet your hormones, you're going to continue to lose that hair. And so, yes, you have to use the minoxidil forever. With traction alopecia, what's causing the hair loss is you and that insult to your follicles. And if you can stop that behavior, then you don't have to use it forever. We can use that minoxidil to kind of help you regrow the hair and you can stop it as long as you behave and you keep your hands off <laughs> and, um, you know, you don't in- re- reintroduce that trauma. I was watching YouTube and um, one of these women, she had just had a baby mm-hmm. and she was just like, where did my edges go? 
somewhere with the child. <laughs> <laughs> so um, would um, minoxidil like work yeah. in like that kind of situation? It helps with that as well. So all my patients always say, my baby took my body and my edges. <laughs> like that's a common. Literally <laughs> snatch the edges. <laughs> Literally snatch the edges. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really common. We see that, that, that postpartum shedding often in everyone, women of color, Caucasian, everyone has it. It's just a human phenomenon. And I also sometimes tell women a big problem is that I don't want you using the minoxidil while you're breastfeeding. So I try to recommend some more natural things. So um, rosemary oil, actually, there's some studies head to head showing that rosemary oil can work as 2% minoxidil. So it's mm. not like the full strength that we see at if you go to CVS, but 2% is still something. So I do recommend rosemary oil for those who don't want to use or can't because they're breastfeeding um, use minoxidil. So there are some concoctions that we'll make with a little bit of rosemary oil that could be effective. That's awesome. I grew up getting my scalp grease, mm-hmm. you know, with the hair jam mm-hmm. and the blue magic, yes, yes, yes. you know, Murray's. all of that. Stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Murray's. <laughs> but, you know, there I think is this conversation out there is like, is oil moisturizing? Should we be oiling our scalp the same way? You mentioned rosemary oil for hair growth. Mm-hmm. So is it, should I be putting oil on my scalp on the regular? You know, your scalp doesn't really need the oil. The hair needs the oil, you know, so you don't have to oil the scalp really, you know, unless you are like really, really dry. A little bit of oil may help. But I think that idea of just slapping oil like we used to do on the scalp is not necessary. You know, what you want to do is, again, it's about retention. So making sure that the strands are appropriately hydrated. For some people, if they create a, a little bit more natural moisture, oil might be sufficient. So I have everyone using a ton of castor oil. Everyone's coming in, but I use castor oil, but my hair is still dry. And that's because for some, you need to add moisture, something that's kind of a cream based. And then lock that moisture in with something that's oil-based. So it, again, it depends on your hair type. So if you are someone who's using an oil and you're fine, by all means continue. But if you're using an oil and you realize that I'm just still dry, I'm still getting breakage, it, my hair feels like an oily branch, you know, it's still snapping, then you may need to add some more moisture to it in the form of a cream or water-based something to give you that moisture. Speaking about scalp issues, mm-hmm. so everyone is coming out with the scalp scrub. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, great, like, let's clean our scalps. Yeah. However, I know sometimes when I'm testing them out, I'm using them, I'm just like, am I damaging my scalp? Yeah. Because I feel like sometimes, especially with the physical exfoliants, mm-hmm. they're, you know, it's like salt and like super chunky. And then they want to put in gly- like glycolic acid and all of this other stuff. Yeah. So is there something that um, especially black women need to like certain things to avoid with yeah. scalp scrubs? So I, yeah, I, I agree that we need to get rid of dirt and debris mainly because we don't want irritation and inflammation on the scalp because irritation and inflammation cause hair loss. But conversely, inflammation and irritation from harsh products cause hair loss. You know? <laughs> so it's all about just being gentle on the scalp. So if you like a scalp scrub, I would say, you know, maybe once every few months when you're noticing that maybe I'm having some buildup. Maybe when I scratch my scalp, I see that I have more residue even after, even after I, I wash. So I would, I would, it's not something that I routinely recommend. And it's not something that I've feel yet is um, completely necessary. But if it's something that you're inclined to, I would say you use it um, in the same way that when we talk about using like a clarifying shampoo, mm-hmm. use it when you feel like you have excess buildup. Use it when you feel like your scalp is just not quite as clean as it should be. And when you do use it, be careful and just make sure you're not scrubbing too hard. Your scalp should not feel tender afterwards. You know, just be really gentle. So now we want to know what do you have in your bathroom? Drop the skincare. I use this. all sorts of things. And I will say this. I know everyone wants to hear, like, these are my three magic products. But I think part of the magic of my routine is I listen to my skin every day. You know, so every day if my, if my skin is dry, then I say, you know what? 
today feels like a rich cream day, you know? Today feels like a, you know, I need to add a little bit more vitamin C to my regimen. The mainstay treatments that I absolutely believe in is retinol. Retinol, 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 retinoid. I use a very strong retinoid. Everyone always thinks it's blasphemy, but I always say I use it twice a day. Wow. I, I know. <laughs> Mouth on the floor. I, I, don't recommend, I don't recommend it for everyone, right? Um, but for me, it works beautifully. I'm very acne prone. So never, no one ever believes me because I don't. I hardly have pimples, but it's partly because I do use my retinoid twice a day. But that's not for everyone. Someone else using retinoid twice a day would be dry. They'd have hyperpigmentation. And so that's why sometimes I, I hesitate when we give these like 10 tips to your best skin. Everyone is different. And the first tip I would say is know your skin type. If you are dry or oily or sensitive, know that and pick your products based on that. So after saying all of that, then I'll walk you guys through my regimen. So I cleanse morning and night. I love cleansers that have active ingredients. I, I am obsessed with glycolic acid. I absolutely love glycolic acid. I use some salicylic acid, but I love glycolic acid for two reasons. A, it's a good exfoliant. And B, it's also a humectant. So unlike salicylic acid, which is going to dry you out. And for me, the, the person using retinoid twice a day, I have to be careful not to get too dry. It doesn't dry you out as much. It, it brings in some moisture while exfoliating. So I like that. We know that we age by getting hyperpigmentation. And so that always having something in your regimen that's going to help to exfoliate, helps to get rid of my dark spots, helps to stimulate a little bit of collagen in my skin, helps to keep my pores nice and small. So I always have an active ingredient in my in my cleanser. In the daytime, I use either my retinoid or I use some sort of vitamin C serum. I do like vitamin C. What's the benefit of vitamin C? Because I think that's the question I get from my friends mm -hmm. most often. Yeah. It's like the first thing they always ask me about is vitamin C serum. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about it and why it's something that especially women of color yeah, should have. Exactly. So vitamin C is a really potent antioxidant. And so in doing that, it kind of protects your skin from all the bad things that UV light does. And not only UV light, the bad things that like pollution does. So all those free radicals that are created by UV and pollution, and I call it New York City skin, just living in New York and walking out into all of that, <laughs> you know, that is just attacking our skin every day. Vitamin C is kind of like your shield from all of that badness. For women of color, it's also important because it also does reduce the creation of pigment. So it's a nice gentle way, unlike something a little bit more aggressive like hydroquinone, which is really aggressively lightening its skin. It's not really lightening its skin. It's kind of breaking up pigment and reducing the production of pigment so that we're less likely to be uneven. So I like it for that purpose. Those are my top two reasons for vitamin C. If I'm not using vitamin C, let's say that I just had a bunch of pimples. I was stressed out like last month and now I have dark spots. So I will use other ingredients. Like, so there are a lot of fade creams that contain ingredients like tranexamic acid, kojic acid, licorice um, extract. Those are all really great ingredients. And sometimes I'll add a serum like that to help to reduce any pigment. And then I use my moisturizer and my sunscreen. And I use, I have a whole like bar full of sunscreens of all, you know, depending on what I feel like. There are some that are primers, some that are powders. I use my sunscreen every day. And then at night I, I cleanse and then I, I use something at night, especially I use something to help me exfoliate even more. So I like the old school buff puff from the nineties. Mm. Sometimes I'll use a spin brush. I like both the Clarisonic Proactive also has a good one that's um that's a cheaper price point, but I love them all. So whatever you you love for exfoliation, add a little bit more. Um, especially as we get older, it's important to kind of shed that dead skin so you look nice and luminous and fresh and beautiful. I use my retinoid. I have another bar of rich moisturizers. I love a rich moisturizer. I love to look greasy at night. You know, I, mean, <laughs> I think that comes from like, you know, your mom used to be like Vaseline on your face. Like I like to look yeah. kind of 
what the girls call dewy, yeah. but it's almost borderline yeah, greasy. Yeah. Like, I like to shine. Exactly. If you come to my house, the seamless guy that delivers my dinner, he's like, <laughs> I'm always greasy. And it's, I, I mean, it's, it's important to me. If I don't, I'm dry in the morning because I'm acting prone, but I'm also kind of tend towards being dry sometimes. Probably it's all the things that I do. But yeah, a good rich moisturizer. It's that time to indulge. And that's, that's my regimen. You know, sometimes I'll throw in a mask from time to time, depending on how I'm feeling. If I'm tired, there's some eye serums that I, I will use. Is there anything you'd like to promote? Take care of yourself. Seek information. Advocate for yourself. Ask all of the questions. Beauty, skincare, aesthetics. It's not just for, you know, Caucasian skin. It's for everyone. Just because you want to fix something does not mean you don't like yourself, does not mean you don't like being Black, does not mean you don't like being a woman. You know, we can have access to all of those things. It does not mean that your self-esteem is damaged. It means that you want access to all the things that Caucasian people have access to. We should have access to all the things. And it doesn't make you less, um, less than to seek out that. Where can we find you? So you can find me. You can go to um, my Instagram. So I do a lot of um, before and afters on Instagram. And so that's at Dr. Michelle Henry. I'm also on YouTube. We have a fledgling YouTube page that's growing, but lots of content that we're going to push out over the next few months where I'm just talking about skincare, answering questions. So you can find me on YouTube. And then you can go to my website, which is, um, we're about to have a relaunch, but it's uh, drmichellehenry.com. And so I'm on all of those places. I'm responsive. If you have questions, you can reach out to me. And I would love to see you guys there. Awesome. You will. <laughs> we going to be there next week for our appointments. Um, thank you so much for coming. You're welcome. Thank you guys for having me. This was so fun. I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation with dermatologist Dr. Michelle Henry. Tune in next week when we kick off our new Beauty Bosses series, which features some of the most influential founders and CEOs in the industry. Our first guest will be Charlotte Tilbury. But before you go, subscribe to the Allure podcast and rate this episode. With five stars, of course. Lord, we need a revival. And let it begin with my edges. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you use that.